This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are fascinated by the things that used to be on the earth but aren't any longer, aren't we? From dinosaurs to things like the dodo bird to woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, like you name it. But should we be using science to resurrect them? Are there things that we can learn from this? What is the rationale for all this? Well, Ben Lamb is the founder and CEO of Colossal Biosciences. His company is actually working on resurrecting woolly mammoths. And he joins us now to talk about that. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Ben, my first question is why? Why do this? <laughs> well, um, most people don't realize this because we're starting to talk about climate change and in, in all the effects of it. But what people aren't talking enough about is biodiversity loss. And that actually leads to ecosystem collapse. And there's about 100 keystone species around the world that if they disappear, those entire ecosystems collapse. That's food security, that's water, that, that, that that's the health and breathing of our planet. And it's forecasted that we're going to lose up to 50% of all biodiversity uh, between now and 2050. And so we're working on technologies that can bring back critically endangered species, as well as bring back uh, a couple of these iconic uh, species to reintroduce them back into degraded ecosystems for geoengineering projects. Okay, so what would you do with those? Like, why wouldn't we focus on making sure we're keeping the species we have rather than resurrecting ones that aren't around anymore? We should. And, but the problem is modern conservation technologies and modern conservation techniques just don't work as fast as the way that humans destroy ecosystems and accelerate man-made climate change. And so the entire conservation world needs new tools and they need genetic rescue tools. Like if you look at the northern white rhino, which are functionally extinct, there's two females left. How modern conservation takes care of them is they surround them with bodyguards, they protect the land and they pray no one they don't just come to disease and no one poaches them. That is the current modern te uh, technique. Our technique allows us to take those uh, gametogen, take, take the individual cells, create embryos genetically, and then and then long term actually grow additional northern white rhinos, ex utero in artificial wombs, so that we can rewild hundreds of northern white rhinos back into the wild. And so those technologies though, Sammy, are really expensive. They're really hard. So you've got to think through what are ways that you can build new monetization models around building these genetic rescue technologies so that you can subsidize it and give it to the conservation world. So all the technologies that we develop on the path for for de-extinction have applications to human healthcare, which we monetize. And that allows us to then give all of those technologies uh, back to the conservation world. Okay, but monetizing sounds like it's still a big part of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, when you start looking at doing genetic rescue on an animal or bringing back an animal, you start to understand what's called the systems. It's system thinking and system design, kind of like a software product. So you have to start to understand the computational software side, the genetic engineering side, the animal husbandry side. And some pieces of that have applications to human healthcare. Like you've probably heard of CRISPR and some of these gene editing tools. Well, we are advancing what's called multiplex editing, where you can make multiple edits all over the genome in our path towards de-extinction. That has enormous applications uh, to human healthcare. We also just spun out our first biotechnology, computational biology software platform, FormBio, which is now focused on helping scientists and bench scientists work better with their data using AI. And so that was a tool that we developed for our uh, computational analysis of ancient genomes. We're now using it, uh, you know, uh, for human healthcare and human research and drug discovery. Okay. Now, Ben, I'm sure somebody has asked you this, but have you not ever seen like Jurassic Park and what kind of safeguards do you have in place? Yeah, we, it's weird. You're the first person to ever ask the Jurassic Park question. We've never, we, I don't we've never heard these. I Come on, no we've, way. We've never heard the Jurassic Park question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, I mean, I've been given T-shirts. I've gone on stage yeah. and the music. So, so yes, I definitely hear it. You know, um, and so, so for us, you know, we are de-extincting genes. We're looking at what are critically endangered species that we can help and we can also de-extinct their long-lost cousin, if you will. So in the case of the woolly mammoth, we're, we actually look at the Asian elephant, which is endangered. It's it's 99.6% a woolly mammoth already genetically. And so we actually then look at just what are the genes that make a mammoth a mammoth, and we de-extinct those to make our, you know, kind of 2.0 mammoths, if you will. And on that path, we actually then get to develop, you know, technologies that can help uh, elephants. One of the things that we've announced that we're working on, which we're, which we're probably, we don't talk enough about, we're pretty excited about, is uh, a cure for what's called EEHV. Most people don't know this because they just think it's all poaching that kills elephants, but 25% of elephants every single year. So a quarter of the population dies due to EEHV. It's the herpes virus that plagues the species. Well, we actually, we as humanity, we have the tools and technologies to save that. But guess what? There's no money in saving that. If not, someone would have already done it. And so for us, you know, when we're working on these big, iconic charismatic species like like the mammoth it completely makes sense for us to eradicate that disease and then that's that is a cure and a vaccine that we can give to the entire world and help save existing elephants kind of on the path to uh, uh the de-extinction of the mammoth so it's really interesting for us because you know we get to make great technologies for human health care we get to you know and on the path to bringing back some of these iconic species we get to help you know their distant cousins that are still on this earth are you worried at all, though, Ben, that like this, this is all sounds great and, and you may be doing it for altruistic purposes and, and it's fascinating. But what, what is the end result here? Like you well, once it gets past this and other people are using your technology. Yeah. So all the technologies that we develop that have an application to conservation we're giving to the world. Right. And so some of our core de-extinction technologies, we're not just going to open up Pandora's box and give that to anyone. There'll be certain trade secrets patents and technologies that that we keep uh, obviously internally so we're not trying to you know give this to the world now some of these technologies like crispr the genie's already out of the bottle like crispr is out there gene editing tools and technologies are out there some of them are actually 
very accessible and very easy to do. People are doing biohacking at home. You know, so there needs to be very thoughtful processes and regulations around some of these things. But we are very, very thoughtful. We work very, very closely with the federal government. Federal government's actually also an investor in Colossal. The U.S. federal government's also an investor in Colossal. So we are very thoughtful about what technologies we will release to the public that have an application for good um, versus technologies that you know could be used for uh, nefarious reasons. Okay. How far away from you, though, are, have, are from having an actual woolly mammoth? <laughs> so um, there may be species that come before the woolly mammoth, full disclosure. Uh, we've announced, obviously, uh, I think, you know, a couple other species uh, kind of on that path. But 2028, we should have our first calves. We are currently on track. We've done the genetic sequencing of both the mammoth, the Asian, and the Asian elephant. We've done the comparative uh, genomic work, so we understand what make what genes make a mammoth a mammoth. And there's about 65 genes we're editing, uh, and we've made uh, and we've and we've edited 20 of them to date. And so we're establishing cell lines and establish, uh, establishing uh, uh, processes for uh, IVF and elephants and oocyte retrieval. And so we're even starting to de-risk the later stages of the project right now. What does that mean? Like de-risk I mean, so the later wait- stages of the project. Oh yeah, so so we're not so we're not waiting. You know, I think a lot of people, like in a research uh, institute, would just go start and they they do okay. What's step one? Let's do step one. Great, let's go do step two. Uh, we didn't do that. We went. You know, we raised two hundred twenty-five million dollars and we built the entire infrastructure in all of the various teams, from animal husbandry to embryology to stem cell reprogramming uh, to cellular engineering to computational biology, so that we could work on all parts of the project in parallel. So we're doing advanced somatic cell nuclear transfer, transfer better known as cloning. Uh, you know, we're actually you know working on that now. We're not waiting till we have mammoth embryos to go through that uh, kind of uh, that that step, if you will, and perfect those cloning protocols. We're doing cloning protocols in embryos right now. Okay. So what else is on your list? Uh, so right now, you know, the, believe it or not, the woolly mammoth, the Tasmanian tiger. Uh, and um, the dodo, that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, that we have is 107, a yeah, we have 107 scientists working on it, and we've got 30 research partners worldwide. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a very large team working on those. So I think we're going to continue to stay pretty focused, um, you know, on those. We, we think, you know, like the dodo is the symbol of man-made uh, e- extinction. The woolly mammoth is, you know, obviously our iconic first species. And, you know, we worked very, very closely with uh, researchers in Tasmania and, and Australia on returning another species that mankind eradicated from the planet. And most people don't realize this, but some of the species that we're working on, it wasn't that man influenced them, like in the in the in the case of research papers that have come out with the mammoth. But there's in other cases like the, the thylacine and dodo, we eradicated them. We just did that. That was not like, oh, we influenced it and it would have maybe gone the trajectory of the mammoths at at some point. No, we completely did that. The Australian government put bounties to kill thylacines and we eradicated the thylacines. We as a a, a species of humans eradicated that. So anything that we can do to undo the sins of the past is something we're pretty excited about. Wow. All right, Ben, thank you very much for that. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. That is Ben Lamb, founder and CEO of Colossal Biosciences. I, uh, I, I just have that feeling like it, just because we can do it, should we be doing it, right? It's, it's, um, it's interesting stuff. It's fascinating stuff. And sure, it's amazing science. But I don't know. We'll wait and see what happens on that one. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. We'll get a check.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Mornings with Simi. It is Coronation Day in the UK. All eyes are on Westminster Abbey in London. That is where we find our Global News European correspondent, Redmond Shannon, this morning. Hi, Redmond. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. So 24 hours after we last talked to you, tell me, have the preparations actually ramped up during that time? Yes, well, the final details are being hammered out. You can see the uh, barriers, the walls going up, the security operation here opposite Westminster Abbey all taking full effect now, getting the final details on um, how and where you can go tomorrow. The global news crew here, we've got to get up super early to make sure we get in before everything is locked down for our broadcast special on, on global television tomorrow. So it is, uh, is an event that is in similar in many ways to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth uh, back in September, but obviously much more light and much more uh, less somber. But uh, from a security point of view, very similar. So many heads of government, so many VIPs, uh, so many heads of state from around the world arriving for this moment of history. What is the what is the atmosphere like among you know people every day? Is are there going to be street parties? Has that been encouraged? I think it it's mixed. It's very mixed and broadly amongst a generation. I did a story earlier this week, uh, just going out chatting to people, regular Brits, away from the bubble here in Westminster, where you generally get tourists, you get people who are royal fans gathering. If we just sample people down here, you'd think everybody loves the royals. But there is a lot of apathy, and there is some dislike of the royals about how much they cost, the fact that perhaps, arguably, they don't uh, do anything for a living and get a lot of money for cutting ribbons. You know, that's how a lot of people do see them in this country, too. And it is generational, I think, in many ways. Older people, older generations, and I think you see this in Canada, too, perhaps more uh, fond of the royals. Uh, And that's regardless of demographic, often, um, and background. But then younger people here are less likely to be um, fans of the royals and in particular fans of King Charles in particular. Um, a lot of apathy about it. I think a lot of people are enjoying the public the holiday weekend here. Monday is a public holiday, but uh, won't necessarily be tuning in. But a lot of people will be. Let's, yeah. let's, be, sure, let's be real here as well. True. There will be millions of Brits watching on TV. So you get a full spectrum of, of, uh, of uh, people and, and how they uh, care for King Charles and how they don't care for him. Yeah, you talked about world leaders arriving here. So who's coming? Who isn't coming? Are there any kind of notable exceptions to that? And I understand that King Charles has also said this is a bit more scaled down or, or different kind of different vibe for this coronation. 
Well, it's scaled down in one respect, uh, first of all, and that is the number of people who will be inside the Abbey compared to the, his mother's coronation 70 years ago. That had 8,000 people. They had bleachers up. They had to close down the Abbey for months in advance in order to install the seating and get as many people in as possible. It'll only be 2,300 this time only. Um, but that, of course, means a lot of people are, are not on the list who may otherwise be politicians of lower rank and VIPs from around the world. Um, now, of course, uh, the heads of uh, government from the Commonwealth and particular Commonwealth realms like Canada will all be here and governors general as well, of course. However, uh, there are a number of events today that King Charles is hosting um, for prime ministers from the realms and heads of government from the uh, across the broader Commonwealth. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, will not be attending those because he doesn't leave Canada until later today, uh, uh, 5.30 Eastern, 2.30 Pacific, when he flies. So he's going to fly basically through the night British time, more or less, I think, by the time he lands, he's going to be heading to the Abbey, um, perhaps avoiding any, um, uh, shall we say, controversies about the hotels and what he gets up to in the hotels, maybe <laughs> this time. I don't know. The, maybe the Liberal Convention was other part of it too, but uh, I think that... Um, we will have to uh, to see um, what uh, where, you know who he meets and what happens right. when he gets here. But right now he's scheduled to get here pretty quickly and and head straight to the church on Saturday morning. Okay, so how how long is this going to take, and when is it all over? Well, it uh, the the procession begins. Uh, I have to convert to my head to Pacific time here, but I think at um, about uh, ten twenty here. So that's what two twenty really a. early yeah. in the morning. A.M. Um, <laughs> really yes, sorry guys, A.M. We're talking <laughs> here. So royal watchers, are, are you going to stay up or are you going to get up? That's the big. That's the big question. Uh, that might one. depend on your demographic as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it goes through until. Uh, the, um, the the ceremony goes from 3 a.m. Pacific to about 4 a.m. Pacific. Then there's a procession back. And then at about, uh, 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 I think, is it uh, 4.30 Pacific, we will have the, fl- the balcony shot with the royals and the fly past of uh, Royal Air Force aircraft over the top. That is weather dependent, though, Simi, and the weather tomorrow is not looking fantastic and if there's a lot of rain, then that could be scaled back or indeed cancelled. All right. Well, Redmond, you are in for quite the 36 hours. So good luck. I hope it all goes well. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day. Bye. That's Redmond Shannon, our European correspondent for Global News. I'm not going to lie. I'll be sleeping when all that is going on. Uh, I will check it out when I wake up, though. But I've stayed up for... Oh, many a royal event. I stayed up when I was just a little kid, but I think we stayed up to watch the Charles and Diana wedding back in, what was that, 1981? Uh, I think I stayed up to watch Andrew and Sarah Ferguson's wedding too. I was about 13, 14 years old when that happened. I know there was a lot of excitement when Kate and William got married. I know there were people here that stayed up all night. People had parties to watch that, right? So there have been events in the past where I think people were all in, fully invested. I'm not sure this is one of them. The emails that I've been getting from people about that this week when we've talked about it have pretty much said, uh, no, not that interested in watching this. So I think I will join you. I will certainly watch the highlights. I will check it all out tomorrow. And don't worry, you don't have to get up in the middle of the night. You can watch it all. Global News will have complete coverage, of course, uh, as it's all happening. And you can check it out. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, it's time for us to check in with this long list of stories of everything that's been going on in the United States this week. And Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, joins us. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, we're going to start with Title 42, because I keep hearing about this. What happened with this this week? Yeah, Title 42 uh, is big. Number one, uh, it is COVID-related. And as you know, has, was just mentioned a couple of minutes ago in the news, the COVID public health uh, emergency was just ended by the World Health Organization. And in, a coming couple, in, in the coming days, The United States is set to officially end all of its COVID mandates. That includes travel into the U.S. for unvaccinated people. But it also is going to lift Title 42. And that was a controversial measure put in place by the former president to stop people from coming into the United States through the Mexican border to seek asylum. More than two and a half million people have been denied or turned back. That doesn't mean people haven't been able to jump and get in. But with Title 42 ending, there is a concern that it's going to lead to a crush of uh, of migrants trying to cross into the United States with the acting commissioner of the Customs and Border Protection, uh, I believe it was last month, telling lawmakers that once the rollbacks are in place, 10,000 to maybe 30,000 people per day could start coming into the U.S. with more than half a million migrants wow. already kind of lined up waiting, sleeping in the streets at the Mexican border. So what are they doing about that? So the administration uh, is gearing up. There are about 2,500 National Guard troops that are actively patrolling uh, the border. They are going to be dealing with it. They are going to be handling processing. 1,500 active duty military personnel will also be deployed to the border. They can't do anything um, in terms of law enforcement because the law doesn't let the military work on domestic soil, but they'll be in charge of uh, of administrative duties. They'll be in charge uh, of making sure that, you know, things are going smoothly. But this is leading to widespread calls from, especially within the Republican realms, uh, for an overhaul of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Republicans believe that, that, you know, the secretary there and the administration has essentially dropped the ball here, uh, and they are, they're really ginning up their base of something terrible that's going to happen with the sheer number of people that are coming into the U.S. Wow, okay. And so that is expected, what, any day now? The troops are on their way? The troops are on their way, and then the rollbacks go in place at 11.59 p.m. on May 11th. So on May 12th, there are zero mandates in place, whether it's Title 42 or travel-based. This is essentially going to be a new country starting on the 12th. Wow. Okay. So we'll be talking to you about that next week for sure, Reggie. Uh, But let's uh, wrap up also what's been happening with the January 6th cases, because there were some big verdicts this week. There were some big verdicts, uh, and they were linked to uh, seditious conspiracy. This is a charge that is not thrown around very often in the United States. It's incredibly weighty. It has, you know, links back to uh, the Civil War. Very few people have ever found themselves tried and convicted on that. But here we are now with several more to go along with about a dozen that have been laid since January 6th. This was against four members of the Proud Boys, including uh, the ringleader, uh, of the, or at least the former leader uh, of the Proud Boys. Uh, these all stemming from January 6th. This was seven days of jury deliberations. There were dozens of charges that were uh, eventually filed uh, and they were convicted on. Some were pushed aside and tossed out and, and the mistrial was declared on some. Uh, but this does show, at least to the U.S. government, uh, that they are on a track that they believe is going to result in some kind of accountability with the sedition here saying that this was a group of people intent on disrupting Congress, on disrupting active uh, duties of Congress, and an attempt to stop the government from being able to work.
Right. And so you said you said it yourself there. The seditious conspiracy charges are not often used, right? That was the challenge with this case. Yeah, not often used because it's not often that we see one or several people attempting to overthrow a state or the federal government. Um, you know, and it's, it's a charge that that prosecutors ultimately don't want to have to lay because it, it risks, you know, crumbling a democracy that is the oldest uh, in the world when it comes to the U.S. Constitution. So for them to be able to say that, look, this is something that happened and for a jury to come back with a verdict, uh, essentially finding themselves in line with that. It helps lift the DOJ with their ongoing investigations to say, look, you know, there are potentials here for other charges like this to be laid. And, you know, the Proud Boy leader himself saying, I'm potentially just a stepping stone here as they try to make their way into the, you know, sphere or orbit of those that were around the former president at the time. Okay, that one is so interesting. Now, I also want to ask you about uh, the international kind of repercussions of what was looked like a drone attack on the Kremlin kind of citadel. I know there's been a lot of the video on this has really been kind of passed around online. And so Russia is blaming the United States for this? Yeah, a couple of things on this. If you look at the video closely, it was clearly taken from inside of an office because you can see lights on in the office. So the question is, why was somebody filming this at, you know, one, two, three o'clock in the morning uh, in the middle of the night in, in Russia? Moscow is saying the Kremlin is saying that this was a direct attack. This was an attempt to potentially assassinate Russian President Vladimir Putin. They've offered no credible uh, reasoning for that or anything to back up their claims. They initially said that this was done at the hands of Kiev. They've now extended that to say that this was directed by Washington, the National Security Council saying, look, that's nothing but a bunch of lies coming from uh, the talking heads within the Kremlin, that the U.S. wasn't behind this, that they've told Ukraine not to attack within Russian territory because that could potentially lead to things uh, getting worse. So we don't actually know what the what the you know. Uh, or how this at least happened, the bigger question is, is this being used? Will this be used in some form of false flag operation or some form of pretext to unleash some new horror in Ukraine ahead of what is expected to be a spring offensive? Okay, more on that one. Now, it wouldn't be a a check-in with you on a Friday, Reggie, without asking you about the Murdoch murder scandal, because this story just keeps on going, even though Alex Murdoch is in jail. He's in jail, uh, and the story, you know, realistically has been, you know, put to pasture. Very few people um, are actually talking about it anymore, except some of the episodic um, uh, podcasters. But the fact that, you know, that the new information is coming forward, and this one having to do with the death of the housekeeper, which, yes. you know, Murdoch had said was, you know, due to dogs tripping the housekeeper, she fell, hit her she, head. Yeah, and, tripped going and, down the stairs or whatever it was, he said. And, yeah, and died. And now information has come out that this was not how it happened. And this was essentially the facts were made up. Dogs weren't involved. And it was a way to scheme the insurance company to try and get, you know, whatever kind of money uh, would be coming from her death for the family. The family ultimately saying, look, you know, we didn't know anything about this. So now they're going to try and sue or in the process of trying to sue Alex Murdoch. This this is a story that, you know, the further you dig, the more oh, questions come up uh, yes. and and the more it keeps this man in the headlines with other questions of, you know, what potentially could be next and who else is going to get dragged into this web of lies that he's created. That is crazy. The whole thing about changing his story on how the housekeeper died. Like I've been following this. I've watched so many shows on this. It is nuts. The whole story is nuts. Uh, we also have not had a chance to talk about the shocking firing of Tucker Carlson from Fox News and kind of what the repercussions have been on that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, the, the the repercussions are if you say racist things, there is a real chance that you are going to find yourself out of a job very quickly uh, and, and out of millions and millions and millions of dollars. And this is what we are now finding out. Tucker Carlson's tweets to a producer uh, that had to do with uh, an attack on, uh, you know, what he called a member of Antifa by three men uh, or at least a group of men. And in his tweet, he was saying this isn't how white men fight. Uh, and, and that really it's a redacted. It was redacted in the, the Dominion lawsuit. Uh, but that was what really started to ruffle the feathers within Fox uh, leadership, uh, that the things that he was saying quietly out loud on his show were being said vocally out loud in text messages to employees. And ultimately, you know, it was what one of a number of things led to his ouster. Um, you know, here Fox News is now taking a bit of a of a spanking from some of the uh, viewers who b- don't believe that Tucker should have been let go. But but ultimately, this is a man, um, you know, who who dug his own hole based on the the opinions that he was trying to put out on his opinion show and thought that he was not going to get i thought he was untouchable which my in my experience every time you think you're untouchable doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing they're going to come for you and the former president uh, is is a classic example of that just because you think that you have some kind of power doesn't mean you have it just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you have it and when you say things that can get you in trouble this is now proof that the things you say can get you in trouble no kidding all right thank you for that reggie thank you This is Mornings with Simi. If you knew that your children were going to lose their sight, what would you do for them with the time that they had? You may have heard the story of Edith LeMay and Sebastian Pelletier from Quebec. Their children have an incurable genetic disease, and they knew they had to do something, that if their children were going to lose their sight, they wanted them to see as much as possible before that happened. So... They just decided to travel all over the world. And we wanted to hear that story. So Edith LeMay joins us now to tell us about that. Edith, thank you for being here. And thank you for having me. How are the kids doing? Uh, great. They're really happy to be back at school. They're happy to be back at school? What? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. Like, I think it has more to do with seeing their friends, but um, they're really happy. Okay, tell me about the trip. So you've, you've just come back from traveling all over the world. What were some of the places that you went to? Uh, we've been to uh, Africa, we've been to Turkey, Mongolia, Southeast Asia, Nepal, Oman, and Egypt. Okay, and what were some of the highlights for you and for the kids? What did they love? Um, they all love different things, and um, I think Mia really loves horseback riding in Mongolia, and Lauren loved the hot air balloon in Cappadocia. Leo's all about all the animals in the safari. And Colin is all about the trains. He loves sleeping on trains. Oh, that is amazing. Edith, did they, did they understand kind of what was going on? You knew what you wanted them to have as many of these kind of moments as possible, right? Yeah, they, they did understand, but they're kids, you know, they live in the moment. So they know because we told them why we're doing the trip. But for them, they're just, you know, today's today and they just enjoy another good time. And where are things like how far along are they in terms of their sight at this point? Um, like the night vision is pretty much gone. So at night, they like they, they turn blind pretty quickly. But during the day, um, besides some like sensitivity to light, their vision is still good. So their field of vision is good. So they were able to enjoy all those beautiful landscapes throughout the trip. That's amazing. You must have had some moments on this trip where you thought, I, I can't believe we're doing this. 
<laughs> a lot. Um, and we were so lucky. It was amazing, way beyond our wildest expectation. And like the world is so beautiful. The world is beautiful. And what about the people that you met? Like you, you gave your children some really valuable experiences. Were you, were you trying to explain that to them? Um, yes. Um, I wanted them because soon, soon during the trip, we realized, yes, it's great to fill their visual memory, but um, to become more resilient also to be able to adapt to all those difficult situations because we didn't travel in like high-end hotel and luxury things. So some moments were pretty uncomfortable. And being able to adapt all the time, I think it was a really great value for them to learn. Great lesson. It certainly was. Now, you've also given you know researchers an opportunity to really kind of highlight this genetic disease as well. Was that important for you? Yes. Well, it wasn't when we started the trip, but then uh, like when the media uh, become interested in the story for us just to be able to talk about retinitis pigmentosa, about how important research is for us. Uh, it was a great opportunity for us. Well, Edith, where can people find out more? Like, I'm sure the adventures are continuing. Where can we connect with you on that? Um, I have a Instagram and Facebook page and even a blog. It's called Plein Leurs Yeux. It's in French. It means, like, full of their eyes. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so online I'm pretty um, – I, pub- I publish all the time. Well, we will look that up. And, listen, best of luck to you. Best of luck to the kids, Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. That's Edith LeMay. She's the mom, of course, and the dad who took their kids on an around-the-world trip. They have four kids who suffer from this incurable genetic eye disease. So they're going to lose their sight. So they thought, well, the time they had, let's take them all over the world and show them some amazing sights. And they certainly did that. It's amazing. You can check out, actually, their adventures on Instagram, as Edith was saying there. This is Mornings with Simi. And let's talk some soccer, shall we? We've been sending people with tickets all week to see the Whitecaps game tomorrow against Minnesota. Time for us to check in now with Vancouver Whitecaps coach Vanny Sartini. Good morning, coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. What do we know about Minnesota? What's going on here? Uh, Minnesota's a good team. And also it's a team that uh, unlike like uh, um, a lot of teams in MLS, they made more points uh, away than at home. So tomorrow it's going to be for sure a hard game. But uh, uh, we have, I would say, all the uh, set of skills and uh, in order to try to, to win this game. We're playing well, so tomorrow we need to, to just keep on this path and uh, try to beat them. Okay, so the Caps have quite a streak going here, right? You're unbeaten yeah. in seven games. You've got, you have not allowed a goal in something like 410 minutes of MLS play. But what you, I guess what the team really needs here, coach, is to score a goal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's say that uh, at the moment we are uh, uh, preparing a fantastic dinner. We are there, all the recipe, everything is perfect. And then at the end of the preparation, we are not hungry and we don't eat. So hopefully tomorrow we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna finish too. And uh, like we're playing well, we're creating a lot of chances, and we uh, we're there. We are there in the area that we want in order to, we take shots. We actually, I read a lot of stats this week. Like we are the team that uh, uh, is uh, having more uh, corner kicks. So it means that we are attacking more on the other side. We took more shots in the box than uh, than any other team in the Western Conference. So I think it's time now to 
to convert those chances. And uh, we know that there are periods like this in soccer. Sometimes nothing go in, and sometimes even even the ball uh, bounces on a cheekbone or a knee, and, and it goes <laughs> in goal. So, and uh, hopefully that uh, that time will come. And I think that this kind of stats will. Uh, even up at the end of the season. So, yeah, we just need to continue playing like this. You sound like you've been doing a deep dive into into the analytics. Yeah, you know, always. I'm a, I'm a you know... Uh, Are you on, the guy who does that? Do you like you like using those on, numbers? Yes, yes. On the million thing that I am, like, yeah, I'm also a nerd. So that's the thing. You're also and, a uh, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we have actually a very good... Uh, I have... Uh, uh, analysis department at the Whitecaps. We have two data analysts and two video analysts that literally provide me with a lot of uh, uh, videos and stats at the, uh, after every game and analyzing every opponent. So uh, it's actually a great part of uh, uh, how we do things at the Whitecaps. We, 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 we don't want to to left, uh, how do you say in English, any stones unturned, I would say. So no, maybe no, you're I'm good. Also, you got it. Any maybe, stone unturned. Maybe I'm also a linguistic. You're a foodie. Uh, <laughs> you lo- whatever the word is for loving your socks. You're a little bit superstitious, and now it turns out you're also a numbers nerd. Yes, yes. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, I, I, have, I have a lot of faces. I can wear all the hats. You clearly can wear all the hats. <laughs> Speaking of which then, so have you changed up the socks? Like, are you going to do something different? Well, yeah, you know, I bought um, um, some new socks for her. And also I'm, mm. I'm, double, I'm, I'm doubling down. You know, I know that it's a morning show, so we need to talk. But uh, I, I, I bought some underwears that match the socks so that I'm going to be doubling down and... and <laughs> You know what? I love it. You are taking it to the next level. Yeah, of course. You're of course. committed. Now, just make sure, like, you know, you have to have matching sets now for the next couple of games if this game yeah. goes well. So we're going to ask yeah. you about that next week. So good luck, coach. Thank you so much. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is Manny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They are in action tomorrow. BC plays against Minnesota. If you can't go to the game, you can listen to the game. You can listen to all the games on AM 730. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, if you are of a certain age like me, then you might remember what has become known as the Satanic Panic back in the 1980s when the news was kind of filled with stories about all sorts of people, everybody, it seemed like, being involved in ritual satanic abuse. It seemed to be everywhere. Daycares, schools, like you name it. It was everywhere. Now, a lot of this, of course, was later on debunked. And it was, though, just this kind of crazy time when this seemed to be happening. It's all part of a new documentary called Satan Wants You. A couple of local filmmakers have been doing this. The directors are with us now, actually, Sean Horler and Steve Adams. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks for having us. For having us. I love the intro song. <laughs> right on the nose, right? Right on the nose. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about this. So when you were watching this, when you were looking and doing research in this, was it hard for you guys to believe that this actually happened? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking back 40 years uh, in the future is like, wow, like it, it was crazy just to know and see like how wide this whole thing was. So that's Steve's take. I grew up in Victoria, <laughs> BC, where the story, the origin story of the satanic panic actually took place. And living through it, I, it's not hard for me to believe that this happened. <laughs> okay. At all. Why do you say that, Sean? Tell me about the origin and everything. 
uh, people just get caught up in this. So, I mean, the, the origin of the story is called, a book called Michelle Remembers. Uh, it was written uh, in Victoria by a young woman named Michelle Smith and her psychiatrist, Dr. Larry Pazer. In 1976, they started two years of really intensive therapy where Michelle started having these, like, recovered memories of being abused by a satanic cult as a child. And they taped the whole thing, and they used those tapes to write the book. And then this book, I mean, no one knew at the time that it would change the world in the way that it did. And, and yet it did. So this book kind of really took off. It had an impact all over North America, didn't it? Yeah, North America. And then further, there's cases all throughout Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand. Like, it really went viral. Okay, so going back with the documentary, was it difficult to get some people to talk about this? Because I would imagine that some people would rather forget this and move on. <laughs> True. Yeah, right? yeah I mean, it's- <laughs> it's interesting for us because it's sort of like you know we started looking into the book and ever, like lots of people know about the book maybe a whole generation doesn't know about it and they'll know about it now but once once we started looking into that realized that the family had never really the family of michelle and larry had never really spoken about this that's where we knew that we had something new to add to this story and larry's ex-wife mary lynn specifically when we called her up she spoke to us and for an hour right out the gate. It was like 40 years hadn't passed at all. That really is uh, amazing. What were the repercussions of this? Uh, Like what kind of an impact did this have on on people's lives to be accused of something like this? Um, I mean, like when you're accused of abusing children, like that doesn't leave you. We we feature a few stories within the film, um, one of them being Kelly Michaels, and she was accused of doing really, really horrendous stuff to, to children. None of it was true. Um, but she ended up going to prison for five years, and uh, an investigative reporter in the film, Debbie Nathan, uh, she told us about Kelly Michaels, and she's kept in touch with her, and she's just said, like, her life has been ruined, and she's never really recovered from it, and it's just, it's really sad to see what happens, and it happened to, like, literally thousands of people. And false accusations, too. Like, these are rumors that people would start, and it literally ruins people's lives. I remember this. I, I remember like seeing this on the news as a kid, like, oh, the daycare was, you know, bust this was happening here. And it seemed to be so widespread. Is were you able to investigate at all any kind of like what the psychological um reasoning is for this? Like some kind of mass delusion? Yeah, I mean you know, I mean it starts it was a mass delusion. I mean you hit that nail <laughs> right on the head. And, like, a a lot of this happens, like, you know, okay, so Michelle and Larry write their book. That's one part of it, right? But then it's the Catholic Church was involved from the very beginning, and priests were involved in the writing. It went straight to the Vatican, right? Like, you you get these, like, big stamps of approval. Law enforcement used the book to investigate cases and used it as proof that this was happening. Uh, Mental health professionals, social workers. It's like a buy-in all across society, that makes allows this to happen. And then at the time as well, I mean, th- things were changing. It was the 80s, like religious horror was like huge. The Exorcist was like a number one movie. Um, and yeah. there was a lot of societal changes that were happening as well that just really made like this, the book coming out at the time it did was kind of lucky. And it just sparked this whole pen, like a pandemic of fear. What, what do you hope people take away from this watching this? 
Well, one of the things we say is like, you know, be careful when you go on your next date if you're <laughs> on Tinder, because like this, this really is a story, right, about two lives colliding in a way that you would never be able to predict the results, right? Like, so be careful out there, people. <laughs> and then also, I should just add, like, people need to be more skeptical. You need to be more cynical. You need to, like, question the information that's given to you. And you can't just take everything at face value, um, because if you watch the movie, you're going to see how just terrible it can be. So devastating for so many people. And people just believed it kind of hook, line, and sinker, right? Like, all you, all you needed was an accusation at some point, right? It's there, like, the, the craziest things, like, if, if a kid didn't like ketchup, that means that they could have been satanic ritually abused. Like, they, they had these gigantic checklists of things that just, like, were completely, like, it was just, like, it was literally stupid. And that's what they used to, like, accuse people, yeah, and yet on every talk show, I was like, I remember this on Geraldo Rivera. It was on yep. Oprah. It was everywhere. Yeah, I, I mean, part of the thing too. It's not so different from today in a lot of ways, right? Like when you think of conspiracy theory, theories, a lack of evidence is evidence. So you can just make an ex- accusation, and even if you don't have proof, that is proof. And we see that with QAnon and PizzaGate, you know. More, more recently. That's very true. We do have a tendency to, to want to be, almost want to believe, I guess, some of the sensational. Do you find that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the more sensational, the better for some people, right? Very true. Where can we see this documentary? It is uh, screening uh, tomorrow night at DOXA here in Vancouver. So DOXA is the documentary f- festival in Vancouver. It's also screening on... Yeah, Friday, May 12th uh, at the Cinematech. Okay, lots of excitement about this. You guys must be very happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I, this is like wilder than we could have imagined. The, the movie's really caught fire, and we're, we're pretty excited to be along for the ride. We've had sold-out screenings across North America, actually. So our first screening in Vancouver. Sorry for your listeners. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow is sold out, but please come on uh, May 12th next, next week. Get a ticket before they're gone. <laughs> you know how to sell it, too. Sean, you know what's amazing about this is that you talked about growing up in Victoria. Quiet Victoria, where a satanic panic was unleashed, essentially. Right? You know, if you have been to Victoria, it's not that kind of city, right? Like, and Apparently yet, it was. <laughs> and people thought in the 80s that this was one of the satanic capitals of the world. It is so, so strange. And it's this chapter of Canadian history. Like, this changed the world folks and if you don't know about it you need to see the film i would agree listen thanks to both of you for being with us today thank you thanks for having having us that is sean orler and steve adams they are the directors of the documentary called satan wants you it's deep dive into the satanic panic of the 1980s and you know if you've never heard of it before i mean if you're i guess a certain age you know if you're younger and maybe people don't want to talk about it it's hard to describe to you or make you understand just how nuts the whole thing really was. And so I would recommend watching this documentary because you won't believe it. You won't believe that this was actually going on. It was, and I, I kind of, I was like a young, early teens, I guess, like 10, 11, 12, around that age. And it was just like, you saw this on the news and it was there and you kind of went, oh man, that's really going on. Okay. But it was like widespread mainstream in the news that there was ritual satanic abuse that was going on. And in hindsight, you just go, what? That was, that's craziness. So yes, check out this documentary. It's called Satan Wants You.